listeners. I am so pleased to return for season three of our Little Lit Pod, and even more pleased that my first guest of the season is none other than Montreal darling Heather O'Neill. Today we'll be discussing her latest novel, When We Lost Our Heads. Heather O'Neill is a novelist, short story writer, and essayist. Her acclaimed best-selling fiction includes The Lonely Hearts Hotel, which won the paragraph Hugh McLennan Prize for Fiction and was longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Her previous work, which includes Lullabies for Little Criminals, The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, and Daydreams of Angels, has been shortlisted for the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction, the Orange Prize for Fiction, and the Scotiabank Giller Prize two years in a row. She's won CBC's Canada Reads and the Danuta Gleed Award. Born and raised in Montreal, O'Neill lives there with her daughter, Arizona. When We Lost Our Heads tells the story of Mary Antoine, the charismatic spoiled daughter of a sugar baron. At age 12, with her pile of blonde curls and unparalleled sense of whimsy, she's the leader of all the children in the Golden Mile, the affluent strip of 19th century Montreal where powerful families live. Until one day in 1873, when Sadie Arnett, dark-haired, sly, and brilliant, moves into the neighborhood. Marie and Sadie are immediately inseparable. United by their passion and intensity, they attract and repel each other in ways that set them both on fire. Marie, with her bubbly charm, sees all the pleasure in the world, whereas Sadie's obsession with darkness is all-consuming. Soon, their childlike games take on the thrill of danger and then become deadly. Forced to separate, the girls spend their teenage years engaging in acts of alternating innocence and depravity until a singular event unites them once more with devastating effects. After Marie inherits her father's sugar empire and Sadie disappears into the city's gritty underworld, the working class begins to format a revolution. Each woman will play an unexpected role in the events that upend their city. The only question is whether they will find each other once more. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. I, uh, yeah, so we are going to just dive right in here. Uh, I want to talk about the concept of revenge to start. Uh, many of your characters in When We Lost Our Heads have been or feel as if they've been wronged. Many of them are successful in enacting revenge against those who wrong them, and some aren't. Uh, but centering this question on, on women and women's experiences, how would you say enacting revenge is a necessary tool towards liberation? Um, I don't know. That's a funny question. I think revenge comes in a lot of ways, and I think revenge is um, subverting people's expectations of you and refusing to kind of allow them to impose your narrative. So sometimes it can, you can just exert revenge by being contrary and going on your own path. But other times you really have to remove people from your way or, um, yeah, just destroy them. I was kind of, uh, I thought it was a fat, it's like sort of a fascinating thing because there's all these, I mean, part of the book was looking at all these ideas that we're supposed to see as negative, but then looking mm -hmm. um, in what ways they're empowering. Like, I was just in Berlin, and I saw on this um, this exhibition about the 
Berlin Wall, it said, escaping is the mother of invention. And I really love that, the idea of escape. And you're kind of always taught as a woman just to like stay and never leave and make sure everybody's um, taken care of and that your needs are secondary. But then I was like, no, like as a woman, you constantly have to be in battle because society is structured in a way to take away your freedom. So you're always escaping, you're always enacting revenge, you always have to have this um, aura of kind of a little bit of terror around you so that people will leave you be. And do you think revenge would be a necessary tool to liberation or not? Um, it totally depends. I'm going to say on some level, yes. I think revenge is healthy and it, it um, allows you, it's, it's sort of a daily kind of war. You have, to, you have to react to people when they are trying to oppress you or screw you over. You just do. It's like you have to be so active in life <laughs> to just get to be yourself. So yeah, revenge. And it also um, demonstrates to other people that you are not to be messed with. Perfect answer. So following up on that, you are very um, clearly interested in writing about characters who live on the fringes of society, specifically setting them here in Montreal, which is a very fringe city in itself. Um, I also think you're quite open in discussing your own life and history, which is also a life lived mostly in the fringe. Uh, you often return to the gritty underworld of Montreal in your novels, something which is also very present in Sadie's storyline and When We Lost Our Heads. Um, I want to hear where you, Heather, find freedom in dilapidation and grit, if at all. Um, absolutely. I think as a, as a child and as um, a very young writer, I think it was my key to um, just creating a sort of identity and a sense of self that I could be proud of. And I had always looked for writers who were from the fringe, like anyone from like Jean Genet or Jean Reese, anybody who was um, sort of had created these wondrous romantic uh, personalities that actually were more interesting and, and more literary because of the sort of hurdles that they had gone through. So I think just creating my aesthetic um, was a way of reclaiming my identity as um, a literary one. And also, I mean, my early novels, especially the first one, was just so naturally set in that milieu because I had spent so much time in it. And um, this was kind of a fun... In this novel, it was funny, my return to what I call the squalid mile, because Sadie, who is, um, you know, this aristocrat, um, aspire, young, aspiring pornographer who's uh, slightly modeled on the Marquis de Sade, and she goes down to the, the lower classes to kind of look for inspiration and things to write about and a certain um, a reverence for um, moralities and breaking of taboos, but she goes um, in a almost kind of exploitative way because she goes and she takes and she takes and then she's sort of part of the revolution but then there are revolutionaries who are like I don't even know if we can trust this Sadie character because she's just here reveling like in this nostalgia de la 
de la boo and does she actually um does she actually care about us or does she just see us as these um aesthetic little montages for her adventures so in that way i think um that was kind of interesting for me because i was like well i keep returning to these places even though i don't belong there anymore and the and that idea of what you take from your life and are, do you have permission to do it? And of course, artists, I think they do and I do and I just take what I want and I mine it all. So I don't know, I was kind of looking at the moral complexities of that adventure. Writing on the fringes, it's, I don't know if it's how I, I grew up or what it is. I'm also so attracted to them kind of dark elements of life and mm -hmm. sort of like perverse ideas and I'm just anything of that even when I was little I just love that sort of like images of um criminal I remember being like 12 and finding like Larry Clark and I was like this is extraordinary such a beauty oh my god you know and I had such it's actually less now but when I was little my attraction towards um this sort of pornographic underbelly of the city was so um, intense and unusual. And um, I mean, I kind of existed with it alone, but then I found other writers who were interested in it. And I was like, okay, I'm not like this degenerate. I'm just an artist of <laughs> sorts. So um, yeah, and I was just so interested in the complexity of artists, like do they belong to a particular class or um, can you just move back and forth? Because it, you're not really of the world as an artist you're always kind of an mm. outsider so um the idea of what class sadie belongs to is um becomes relevant in the novel to the revolutionaries is she actually an aristocrat just because she's she's been ex exiled for her pornographic writings but is she essentially more of um an aristocrat than anybody else in the city, which essentially she is. She's the snobbiest character in, in this wonderful kind of way. Exactly. <laughs> um, and kind of jumping off that, and you know, like Montreal is such a perfect setting for this, for the gritty underworld. Would you ever write a novel that didn't take place in Montreal? I would actually. Um, I've been thinking about it, and I think my next book is kind of set in this fable like country so I did yeah I did four novels and I set in Montreal so I think I'm ready to leave but it's not even a conscious thing you're it's just um that's where I intuitively go and this not like the when we lost our heads just took place in Montreal still in this Victorian era and for some reason my next one left it and I was like oh my I finally left Montreal oh <laughs> oh we're out <laughs> Um, you have a very particular voice in writing and it really kind of like hit me hard with when we lost our heads, like the penny dropped. Um, it's the voice of an oral storyteller, but a style that I don't know how else to describe other than fairy tale esque. Um, I can even double down on this and refer to, I mean, almost any of your writing, but specifically in the volume one of the Weird Era Literary Journal, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which shares that really, really similar voice. Um, fairy tales, I think, should contain a sense of whimsy. They're usually magical, uh, but always contain a lesson. If I'm correct in this assessment, what would you say the fairy tale lessons are in When We Lost Our Heads? The fairy tale lessons, if I was to um, derive 
from a kind of fairy tale tradition, I would definitely say that those fairy tale characters that have the plucky young girl. And um, it's funny because when you mm -hmm. look at the history of fairy tales, there were equal amounts of stories about little boys and by and of little girls, but the ones about little girls kind of were taken in the oral tradition and just kept, I think, because there were so few stories about young mm. girls. So young girls were very attached to these. And I think what it is, is that tradition of the young girl who, um, although innocent, is very wry and ironic and just fearless in her ability to confront monsters and ogres with this very uh, sort of um, reserved, like educated, but, uh, you know, a poised little girl, but with all these, um, uh, the flexibility to come up against monsters and just have, the, who has an idea of a path they must fulfill. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. all, the, all the little girls in my book who kind of watch uh, grow up and become women, what kind of distinguishes them and why they find each other is because they all have these paths in life, these callings that have, that are so out of place with um, Victorian ideals of what young girls are. So they inevitably kind of like find each other in the city because they're these, cr these girls with um, crazed ambition who are just willing to go on the path, even if it destroys them, but because they need to go along the path. And, and that comes that maybe is uh, kind of a fairy tale tradition. And what would the like lessons be? Like, you know, like fairy tales always contain a lesson, you know, listen to your mother, uh, don't go into the woods at night. What is the, what is the fable answer to when we lost our heads? I think the, I mean, just thinking of off the top of my head would be probably the value of working with other women and creating these networks of women. Cause the ones who um, are more attached to the revolutionary idea and actually have a moral compass survive. And the one that betrays other women, I mean, it goes without saying right from the beginning, because it's a Victorian era, they ha all have to stay away from men because marriage would just, they would just become someone else's property and there's no mm -hmm. way they could run around, um, you know, chopping off fingers and, and <laughs> doing them, <laughs> the grotesque um, things they do. But um, so I, I think probably the lesson is that you really have to value these um, societies of, of women and that women need to step, um, step up and help one another out. And what do you think attracts you to this style and form in writing? Um, that was, I find it, I think it's just this voice that I developed and it, you know, it, it, you develop it out of your natural sensibilities. And it was just, it was built of all the things that I enjoyed. So, um, yeah, there, um, it has definitely these um, undercurrents of children's literature and that rhyming mm -hmm. and simple and and the strange uh, confluence of like Edwardian times and modern times. And then, um, yeah, but at the same time, sort of my love for that episodic pornographic world of um, that kind of writers who write from these dark places. So it kind of combined the two of them. And I just, 
I think I chose that style because I love writing in it and there's something so delightful. Like I love um, putting it together. I just find it pretty. And I find when I write the words, I'm just like tying them in little bows. And there's something about the act that um, just delights me almost like I'm playing like the same energy when I was playing with a dollhouse when I was a child. And it's like, these are filled with little characters that I like. And this, it just <laughs> delights me. I always write what delights me. Well, it's funny too. I was also going to ask, you know, or rather say there is this certain youthfulness uh, that comes along with the Heather O'Neill brand. Um, why do you think people should continue to read fairy tales into adulthood? Um, I, I think um, there's something about being able, it, the sort of, what am I trying to say? That that leaps of the leaps of logic, the irrationality, the mm. um, strain, the belief in magic, I think is Im sort of imperative to thinking. Cause I always, even sometimes when I'm stuck on like writing an essay or something that I'll just read a few pages of Alice in Wonderland, which was, he was basically trying to mimic the logic of a child's mind and how, yeah. Just look at things so originally and and um, question them as though you've never seen them before instead of sort of taking what everybody else says about them. And that always twists up my brain and then I go back and it's like, okay, yeah, there's just different ways. There's ways of thinking. And I think um, children are really flexible with uh, their logic and the way they, they speak. So, And we should be too. <laughs> Exactly, because otherwise as adults we start with this group think where everybody, I mean as a child we feel so singular and unique and we always yeah. feel like we're the center of the universe and our thoughts are important, but then we get older and we just start, you know, doing statistically like what is the most appropriate thing for me to think and there's no, you lose that sense of like I'll just have a radical idea and, te you know, test it out in the world and this, I, you know, and kids are like, kids are closer to being like polemicists and it's like anytime you make any kind of argument you overstep and it's there's a an element of it's that's absurd but it's like fun to do that and it's the only way you kind of find new thoughts and mm -hmm. um so it's sort of like children who are always getting into physical accidents because they're like well they say i can't jump off this balcony but i don't know until i try and <laughs> i think we can do that with our sort of intellectual ideas it's kind of um it's good to think outside the box and see what is there. Uh, jumping into uh, some of your characters now from when we lost our heads, um, Mary Antoine and Sadie have such polarizing characteristics. Um, you know, the juxtaposition of them down to their most basic descriptions. Marie is sweet and blonde and very rich. Sadie is very brooding and dark haired and embraces this life of squalor. Uh, suggests very black and white, good and bad identities. Instead, this is obviously very twisted. You give us very ambiguous uh, creatures here um, existing in the gray. The question here is, what is it about moral grays that interests you? Um, well, what I, I mean, what I loved about those two characters were they were the most problematic in the book and everything they do is so <laughs> problematic and questionable. And yet at the same time, like I just... I really love those two characters. And um, even though I knew they were wicked, like I, I had created the cast of characters at the beginning. I was just playing with them. And then 
I had no idea Sadie and Marie were going to be the sort of um, main characters of the book, but they just took over because they're so narcissistic and bossy. Even when you're trying to write a scene, they take over the scene. Um, and, you know, and I had created them to be kind of the, the two villains in the story. And yet they were so, um, you know, they had that charisma of narcissists, that wonderful yeah, charismatic, and, and exactly. Productivity yeah. and pulling things out of the hat, and the, the ability to entertain and to um, dominate a room. So, um, yeah, I was I was really kind of delighted with that because, um, yeah, I don't really like virtuous characters because I don't consider myself virtuous. So, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, and I, I think we all kind of have to. I mean, in this world, we're all problematic on some level. And I think it's it's okay to embrace that instead of having this illusion that we're all um, these perfect scions of, of virtue and the right thought, you know? So jumping right off of that, Ben, mm-hmm. um, in the novel, you include the genderqueer character, George. Um, George actually does literally seem like the one character in the book who has a functioning moral compass, uh, which I love for this mm-hmm. character in this novel set in the late 19th century. Um, I think it's also probably because they're so informed by the women around them, specifically from being uh, like communally raised in a brothel. What was it like to write George in this sympathetic way and fit them into this story when so many of the characters are, as you would say, wicked? Um, yeah, George... George is wonderful. I do agree. She is definitely the moral compass of the uh, of this of this novel because she's the only she, and she's constantly um, taking a moment to try and make everybody a little bit more sane or focused with their crazy revolutionary actions. But um, <laughs> what was it? Uh, she was an interesting character. She was fun to get to know, and um, yeah, there were times I think when I felt obviously, and I think readers do too, because I've gotten some uh, messages saying like, I'm not pleased (laughs) with the way George was treated at times. But I'm like, yeah, but George is like, falls in love with um, a narcissist. But um, yeah, so at times I really felt bad for George because George has such an open heart and she just helps everybody out. And um, Mm. yeah, she's just taken advantage of by um, that kind of uh, the uh, aristocrats in the novel who just have no sort of empathy for morality. They just don't understand it. They don't understand her motivations. But yeah, and I love that she was raised in a brothel, just passed from one woman to Mm -hmm. another, and it kind of was able to dismantle this idea of, um, you know, the nuclear family or the family being the right place for a child to be raised. And she was somehow she kind of skirted all this um, gender conformity in the Victorian era where what, you know, how a girl moved to the way she moved her fingers to the way she spoke to the volume, you know, everything was just tailored Mm. and monitored. And she somehow um, grew up in it, you know, and just filth and, and, and marvelous squalor um, with all these, you know, (laughs) high class, high class, um, sex workers around her. So, um, yeah, I really liked that she was able from those, that, that parentage to spin, um, this really moral vision of the universe and what could actually help, um, women move forward in society. 
Um, so I like, you know, I, I obviously don't think we should ever label anyone as one thing or the other. This is also a fictional character that you've created, but I was curious about your decision to use she, her pronouns to describe George in the context of the novel. And even now, um, while even in this interview and writing this interview, I thought referring to them with they, them pronouns felt more appropriate. Um, I think I'm also asking this in terms of non-binary slash transness. Um, I very much see George as a non-binary person, but the options of language and choice of identity would have been so lacking in the 19th century, um, to say the least. Is this just my interpretation or is this lack of language something you did conscientiously? No, it was done actually very conscientiously because I also feel that George... um, yeah, and, and I had a lot of back and forths with my editor about this because I also felt that they would be a more appropriate um, pronoun somehow for George because, mm. yeah, they seem like non-binary. Yeah. But then we were um, with my editor. She would just not have access to that language. So it would have been so um, anachronistic. Yeah. And also if she had access to that, those language, she wouldn't even be having the same sort of internal debates and they wouldn't be so new and different um, to her. Yeah. So we kept her as a her, even though she's a George and um, yeah, de- <laughs> like would definitely um, in, in the modern in the modern age, she would, I imagine they would be non-binary, but it's very hard. To, yeah. It's a hard thing to talk about because the language has changed so much in the past few years. So it's hard to know what to do with that. Cause even like I have a parent who's trans and I also, mm-hmm. even within that, I have so much trouble. And once I was writing a globe and mail article and I was working with, um, Casey Platt on it and we kept going yeah. uh, back and forth to what to call the parent and um, because there's not really words for it yet because I'm like I'm not going to call them my father that's ridiculous right. but they also don't like being referred to as my mother so I'm like I'm like what's the language for it? So, like we're so building things semantically that it's kind of interesting and we're finding where we don't have words for it yet that kind of suit everybody. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely there is in uh like just as a kind of side note on that as well. Um Andrea Bennett in their book Like a Boy but Not a Boy, they talk a lot about parenting and how gendered parenting is and the same thing that's exactly where they end up is just like they throw a couple different things at the wall because it's like well you know like we have this toddler I don't want to be mom I'm definitely not dad but where does it lie yeah it's all so nuanced and so fascinating to me yeah it's um we're kind of working we're just working on this new language which yeah I also find it fascinating because we're in the realm of when you work with ideology and ideas and semantics, but, and it's like so important because it's language is just so valuable to be able to place yourself in the world and find like-minded people and to just know you're okay. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And so 
you know, George was doing that in a Victorian context. Um, sex work is a topic that is uh, nicely explored in this novel. I think this is a really interesting thing to delve into since Montreal as it has been and as it is today is kind of a sex capital of the world, if we can call it that. Um, you know, Sadie lives in a brothel for a good portion of the novel. You have George who's raised in this brothel. Um, but Sadie specifically begins writing erotica at a young age, eventually just totally legitimizing her craft, publishing her stories. She experiments with sexual domination at the brothel during this time. Um, so it's pretty clear also, and you even mentioned in this interview, Sadie's character is inspired by Marquis de Sade. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from the obvious sexual liberation aspect, what informed your decision to equip Sadie with these particular gifts? Um, the gift of, I think, well, she's interested in freedom and this sort of incredible radical freedom. So she's always mm. interested in breaking taboos. And of course, as, um, as a woman at that time, the, uh, sexual taboos were so strong and she's so perplexed by the fact that she, you know, when she, she starts having sexual feelings and she's um, at a boarding school and she finds pornography and she just finds it absolutely wonderful. And instead of feeling that it's because she's Sadie mm-hmm. and every time she finds something that she's not supposed to like and she likes it, then she's like, let's explore this. And like, why are these hidden away when they're so enjoyable and we masturbate and like gets all the <laughs> girls together. She's like, this is incredible. Let's read it together. It's wonderful. And um, so that was kind of the basis. And also the idea, as a Marie de Sade, she was just interested in that philosophy of the bedroom and what are in our desires and how can you actually know Mm. yourself if you don't kind of open yourself up sexually to different experiences and know um, what it is you desire. And she kind of sees that integral to um, if you're oppressed in that aspect of life, you will be in all other aspects of life. And... um, yeah, she just and she just loves the power of sexuality, and she uses it um, to become this uh, very provocative, irreverent figure. That because she's so um, open about sex and writing about it, she just is using it actually as a vehicle to completely destroy um, her family name and everybody she's related to. <laughs> Um, And I do want to follow up on this question by talking a little bit more about sex work um, in Montreal. Mm -hmm. We have gained that reputation kind of as a sex capital, mainly, I think, because many of our strip clubs historically allow contact between patron and worker. I think a lot of this is changing now. Um, But what does that fact say about us as a city um, and in the greater picture about sex workers having bodily autonomy today? Um, well, I think it goes deeper than, than uh, the contact at the strip clubs because Montreal, for because it was a port city, it was always um, a center for sex. And then, you know, in the Second World War, all the, the American mm-hmm. army would just port in Montreal and just go crazy and see all, you know, there were sex workers and they were just... Um, there was so much money in it um, because it was also the gangsters and the mafia around the city for so long. So um, it's right. just, yeah, it's kind of um, an, uh, an aspect of the city that you can't sort of miss. But I, I think um, 
because of that, I think we're just more open about uh, sex work as a profession and also, um, you know, and that mm. these women need rights and it's a legitimate form of work. And that's how I've also seen it. And I also, I find it really interesting. And in, if you look in the Victorian era, um, prostitutes had the most, you know, from the lower classes had the most access to great health care, um, gynecologist stuff like they were also they were well fed their quality of life and their um their what you call it their length of life was much was much greater than that of a mother or a housewife that would kill you like if you had children it's much better i mean mm. not that it's like the greatest existence because obviously you had some flaws in it but with anything but as a prostitute you had so much more rights in the Victorian era than as um, a mother, someone who was married. So I was really kind of interested in that. And also I always mm -hmm. like this figure you see often in Victorian novels of the sex worker. And that is because she was one of the few, it was one of the few um, professions a woman could pursue. And it was in that she had a certain, amount of agency because she didn't belong to a particular man. So it's sort of like the, the orphan figure, like you have orphans so much in literature because they don't have parents kind of locking them up and like, no, you're not going on this pirate ship. So, and it was the same thing with prostitutes uh, in a way in these novels where they're just able to have these adventures because they don't belong to a husband who's constantly monitoring all of their, their movements. I'm going to ask this question because I thought a lot about um, Delta of Venus by Anais Nin while I was reading this novel, which was really kind of my first introduction to um, erotica. I read it when I was a young adult. I thought it was so vital and fascinating and informative um, for our listeners. It doesn't particularly hold up all that well in 2022. So do be aware of that if you ever want to pick it up. Um, but I still think contextually it is an incredible piece of literature. Are there any volumes, uh, particular volumes of erotica that you have a connection to? And did anything in particular inspire you or inspire Sadie? It's um, an interesting question. I think that, um, yeah, it's funny that you bring up Anais Nin because I do feel um, in my last novel too, there is definitely um, something very Anais Nin-like about my writing and her sort of... Um, Particularly, yeah, I had read um, The Delta of Venus when I was young, too. I also actually reread it recently, and I was like, wow, this doesn't stand up. But at the time, it was like... Um, it no, it great. doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, but also, in her, in her diaries, like the way she used to write about um, Henry Miller and June Miller, and who are these very corrupt mm. characters, but she wrote about them in yeah. such a magical way. And anytime she met anybody who was a degenerate or doing something pornographic, she would write about them as though she were an excited child. So, um, yeah, she's definitely had an influence on, um, on that. And as far as, um, all, well, one of, I actually read, um, Angela Carter's book on the Marquis de Sade, which had a really big influence 
on the way I was thinking about pornography at okay. the time and just how she kind of situated the Marquis de Sade as um, this counterintuitively an early feminist who saw the female body as some as not um, destined for motherhood, but that motherhood mm -hmm. was revolting and a woman should just um, be free and <laughs> not marry and, and also become libertines. So um, the way I was so interested in the way these 20th century feminists were dealing with the Marquis de Sade's work. So that's a lot um, more than just the actual pornography itself. It was those um, kind of like overly earnest um, and hopeful interpretations of the Marquis de Sade, which I thought was lovely because it's also, um, you know, the way I was questioning the character of Sadie in the novel. Is she good because she has all this, um, this freedom and this intellectual like rigor and wonderful insights about life? Or is she, you know, wicked in the same way mm -hmm. that the Marquis de Sade is in actuality a horrific man who, you know, was thrown in jail for absolutely great reasons. And, um, you know, and yes. Sadie too has this um, very, you know, slightly <laughs> psychopathic side where she is able to just dispose of people and do anything to get her way. All right. Well, that's it for me, Heather. Thank you so, so much for coming on today. I had a blast. Yeah, thanks. That was wonderful. And uh, we will be in touch. We'll get you back to the shop uh, sometime soon to sign more copies of When We Lost Our Heads. And uh, we will be eagerly awaiting anything that you do next. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex.